I know exactly what you're thinking, that not every technical solution is the same, even if they happen to be similar. Sometimes there are specialty problems, specialty problems like physical location and distances that you have to solve. Well, it just turns out that we have a project just for you. Solves these problems in a very clever way and even introduces you to one of the newest Microsoft research projects that you have never heard of. That's this episode of DevRadio. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Microsoft Dev Radio. I'm Jerry Nixon. I'm your host, and I am excited to be here with Paul Foster, all the way from the UK, another technical evangelist. Paul, thanks for being on the show today. Hi, Jerry. It's great to be here. Now, let's see. You are in or near the Reading office, spelled reading office, for those people who are, like, hilarious. But uh, uh, tell me a little bit about who, who's Paul Foster, just in case there's anybody who doesn't know. Um, so I'm a technical evangelist in DX at the moment. I've worked at Microsoft for over 22 years across a variety wow. of technologies and products. Um, and uh, I like building things, making things, and that's why working as an evangelist is fantastic because I help people achieve more. Did Did you start out in evangelism? Have you been Have you been in evangelism for 20 years? I started out in the business briefing team, which was technically <laughs> evangelism. Um, but I've stuck with uh, developer and I've worked for mobile business unit and a variety of other things. So I've done wow. a lot. 23. You're two years away from 20. What do they do for 25? Do you know? Uh, probably take you. No, I can't say that. Sorry. I was going to say. <laughs> they, give you, they give you a high five, pat on the back, and thanks for your service. That's right. That's right. That's... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's easier to say than whatever it was you were about to dream up. Um, what's your – in evangelism now, uh, I, I, I love talking to evangelists. And uh, in evangel, what's evangelism like in the U.K.? What's the technical climate uh, around, uh, around Reading and everywhere else? Well, I, I guess it's like the rest of the world. We've got a lot of um, conversation as a platform trending up there. Um, but a lot of um, automation, a lot of looking for self-service. So that's where the CAP technologies come in. Um, but for a lot of that, we need to do instrumentation, and that's where my IoT technologies come in. You know, the IoT world is the fuel for AI uh, as we work at the moment. Um, so the question is, how can we economically instrument the things around us? Uh, and we're doing some cool things. The stuff we're going to talk about today um, is driving a lot of our industry engagement um, because it reduces the cost of instrumentation and enables some pretty new approaches to very traditional um, commercial services. Uh, talk to me a little bit about why we're still waiting for this because I feel like Azure's there, I feel like the hardware is there, um, and yet we're waiting for all this automation, we're waiting for all this instrumentation. What do you think is the barrier, and not, not just in a specific industry, why are we not seeing this, just the floodgates breaking open right now? Well, that's a really good question, and then it's a great one relevant to this project because um, the challenges are predominantly around the cost of the hardware materials. Mm -hmm. um, so at the moment, we have 
um, you know, devices, sensing devices that are coming out at fairly high cost, and that high cost is is supporting those organisations. You know, that's their business margin in that device, mm -hmm. uh, and that's having to cost things such um, cover costs such as certification for those devices. Um, so there's a lot of high cost um, incorporated in building a device and bringing it to market. But there are um, other challenges as well. So traditional wireless technologies um, that we might use, such as Wi-Fi or even BLE yeah. uh, for connectivity, sure. give us a really low um, sensor to gateway ratio. And that means if you're trying to instrument a large space like a commercial office building, you end up having to have a large number of gateways to to gather together small batches yep. of sensors. And the gateways are part of are a big part of that cost. Yes, I mean literally the gateway is providing that, that bridge from some other smaller sensor device. So the technologies we've been using this project are striving to uh, solve that problem. And I've mm -hmm. been building some devices that we'll talk about in a little while that, that um, move us to more inexpensive sensors um, yeah. with uh, longer battery life. Hey, uh, there's some fascinating things here. Um, you know, one is if I were talking to just the average cat out there and I was saying, you know, these devices are pretty expensive and they were, they were to ask me, you know, well, how expensive are they? And I say, well, they could be $40. And they're like, why is that expensive? I, I think a lot of people don't wrap their head around that uh, you could buy 100,000 of these and suddenly it's very, very serious. And now we have, you know, you mentioned certification and we have a whole handful of regulations and security concerns that can take a $40 device and it, and double it to an $80 device instantly just because maybe it also needs to be underwater and it needs to be able to withstand a whole bunch of heat and or whatever it is as well. Right? All these subtle yep. things where you're like, now I've taken what, you know, I, I could buy that sensor for 30 cents on eBay. Well, that's great, but that sensor is useless without, without all of these other pieces, which bring it, and now we're almost to $100 for those, and I still need 4 million of them. And so, you know, it's just going to be this enormous thing that I'm going to have to overcome and so it seems like a small cost until you realize the scale of IoT. And I think a lot of people feel like IoT is a Fitbit on their arm. And it's just, they just need to buy one. And they don't, they don't realize that it's just, it's an, it's an enormous concern. Yeah, I've got, I got some good examples for you in terms of, um, you know, we're working with some commercial companies that want to instrument um, buildings for people. And when I say buildings, I'm talking about not only the toilet blocks, um, okay. but also things like confidential waste bins. Now, one of um, the customers uh, that we're looking to work with has 500 confidential waste bins spread across 33 floors uh, and well over you know, 60 sort of toilet blocks in, in that scenario as well. Uh, and as you start to try and instrument every waste bin in a way that's more economical than having uh, cleaning staff members walk around on, a, on an hourly rotor to check the bin to see whether it's, it's empty or not. You know, you, we've got to drive the, the price point down. Um, there are a lot of commercial issues. Um, labor costs are, for example, continuing to rise. Um, so particularly in the facilities management world, you know, customers are looking to deliver a high quality of service, but at a, at a good price and they want to utilize you know their most skilled asset their labor in the best possible ways I mean you know it's pretty dull just walking around checking bins but if you can be utilized to do a lot more creative things because you can be directed 
by when bins are ready to empty and when facilities are needing other maintenance tasks or or your customer's customer needs support you know if you can be driven dynamically to do that then then you know that team member's job is far more interesting far more engaging yeah. give them a great way to move forward um, and, and and that of course improves the whole service experience um, for the recipient customer anyway so yeah. there's a lot of positive things there in terms of you know giving people a lot more to, to get on with uh, being more efficient in, in doing that and being clever you know being clever having um, some you know, I'll call it AI for the moment, but it obviously we know it breaks down into some machine learning models and, we, and it breaks down to SLA agreements that are captured in the cloud and encompassed in these, these models. And of course, those models are then fed by the instrumentation data from IoT uh, devices, uh, and then the models are delivering instruction, typically to a wearable device, um, or, you know, that the cleaning staff or the member of uh, staff is wearing. Uh, and that yeah. just means that, you know, yeah. A, the service company can say, you know, yes, we did meet your SLA requirements and here's the data to prove it. Um, but it also means that, you know, they were able to excel at that service delivery and be where they needed to be to do what they needed to do. Uh, and you know, I, I feel like clever. I'm so glad you used the word clever because I feel like clever is the new the new low bar. Like if your company isn't being, uh, you know, you don't have to be ultra complex. That's not the same thing. If you're not being clever in the way that you're utilizing the, what you have, um, it is, well, you're, the, the clock is ticking for you is really what it is. And I think it's very fascinating. You made this awesome point around uh, labor and that labor costs are going up. And um, I was just at, at Disney World. I didn't know this. Disney is making also an, a, a, a sensor for their trash to be able to detect whether or not trash cans are open or, or full because there are so many trash cans there. And I'm like, yep. wow, are they just doing this for fun just so they can say they're high tech or not? And uh, not long ago, I was, I was in India and there was a, um, a water tower and it was ancient water tower, uh, and I asked what I thought was a simple question. You know, how did they get the water in there in the first place? And uh, the tour guide just kind of smiled in a "you're so dumb" sort of way, you know, and said, "Labor is not a problem in India." And I'm, and at that moment, after recovering from the mortal embarrassment, I was like, "Aren't they lucky?" Because the rest of us, uh, we have, we don't have this crazy luxury of labor is such an easy thing to to come by. And then guys like you. Start making it harder on us because now I don't need to go check 2,000 trash cans. I need to check 2,000 trash cans and 6,000 monitors that I have and all of these other things and all these gateways and things to check. And now you blow it up like this and the labor stays somewhat static if not going down just a little bit. And so now Clever really comes in as the savior because we are either backing ourselves into a corner or we're going to solve this just by thinking smart about it again. And I think it's, a, it's exciting. It is exciting, and and there's there's yet more because you know um, instrumenting static things is is only the beginning, uh, and some of the cutting edge stuff that we're now involved in is literally using you know mobile robotics so that mm -hmm. things like patrols uh, they are now uh, can be run. And, and controlled, if you like, by a, a mobile command base, which is your night security guard. Um, but now he's got delegates, you know, which are these robots that are, you know, operating, checking, and they're doing other building service things. So, you know, they're equipped with cameras. They're recognizing that there are fire extinguishers in place, that uh, fire exits are closed uh, or yeah, open yeah. in error or blocked. You know, so all of these things become just IoT telemetry data. 
once we've done the processing and and certainly the project we're going to talk about today is that is our first start if you like at defining that sort of architecture and, and this sort of solution um, for the facilities management industry enabling them to start taking advantage of all these cool things okay well let's do that let's talk about uh, the problem we're about to solve because interestingly enough this is a this is not a unique problem. Everybody kind of, bump, not everybody, but lots of IoT-oriented industries or, or solutions bump into these problems, and uh, there aren't a lot of solutions for them. But uh, you have a couple of novel ones that aren't unique because it's you, but unique because this is what we used in this project, and it's pretty cool. Talk to me a little bit first. How do we meet the customer? Who is this partner? Okay, so um, I work a lot with um, the, the Microsoft ISV ecosystem, helping them achieve more with cutting-edge technologies. And one of the great partners I've had the pleasure to work with um, almost across my um, 20 years at Microsoft has been a, an organization called TBS Enterprise Mobility. Okay. And, and TBS came to us and said, hey, we've got an interesting challenge. We need to instrument this site, and the site's pretty far apart. Um, what have you got that could help us do this? Hmm. Um, and they introduced us to um, the Emirates Airline cable car. So this is a cable car that spans um, the Thames in London. Um, it's a one and a half kilometer crossing between the Greenwich Peninsula and the, the wow. Royal Dock, the Royal Victoria Docks, where um, people might be recognised uh, XL, um, the large uh, London exhibition centre. Um, and it has, you know, 36 uh, cable cars, gondolas that go around over this, and, and obviously the, the two stations on, on each side. <laughs> um, and, and they wanted to, you know, get more data out of, um, you know, their end-to-end -end system um, so that they could start moving on this journey of predictive maintenance that we understand. Um, but they also wanted to, you know, increase customer comfort and customer service and look to expand their commercial operation or their commercial opportunities, I should say, in, in running um, the cable car. So the, the cable car, I should point out, is... Um, part of um, the Transport for London infrastructure and it's actually operated for Transport for London by uh, the MACE Macro Group. Um, so we were working with the MACE Macro guys on the ground and with TBS um, as the development team uh, and supporting them building out a solution. Okay, uh, talk to me about, give me the high level of the solution because um, I still want to, what was their core problem? Okay, so um, the core problem was uh, getting more real-time data for the volume of usage. So they needed to, they got a number of people passing through the system count at the end of every day from the existing uh, Transport for London, which are, are probably called TFL. It's easier to say okay. TFL. Um, so TFL would provide a report maybe the next day of how many people traveled on the, the previous day. And they really wanted to... Uh, you know, know who's traveling at what sort of peak times across the day. Um, and, and that all links to, um, you know, the, the maintenance cycle of the cable cars. Um, and then there is actually the operation of the cable car. And it turns out that they can speed it up and slow it down. And they do so based on, you know, the volume of people oh, in the cable car and, and the temperature and the, the environmental condition in the cable car. Um, because these cable cars are running on battery power. So you can't just have your AC running all the time, you know. So if it starts to get hot or it starts to get really cold, they'll speed the cable car up so that your journey is shorter and, you know, you're able to do huh. so in comfort. 
Um, but they needed to get more real-time data. They had uh, a limited radio signal that did give um, some CCTV frames, you know, with you know quite a long duration between them. Um, but they didn't get a lot of other sort of real-time data out of the the cable car. Um, and, and also, the cable car houses an infotainment system, and uh, the, and that infotainment system can only update itself in short segments as the cable car literally passes through one of the stations. So, performing yeah. any large upgrade, you know, to the content, you know, and, and so on of the infotainment system, you know, takes a fair time because all 36 cable cars take a chunk as they just pass through one of the lead stations as they turn around. So uh, what's the what's the time duration in general from going from one side to the other? Uh, it's somewhere between ten and fifteen minutes. Okay. Um, so okay. it's quite a nice journey. You're sat there over the Thames. You can see, you know, all the sites of of, of London um, laid out before you. So I thoroughly recommend it if you're if you're okay. uh, in London. Um, so, so there was an instrumentation of um, the cable cars, and there was a further instrumentation of the of the stations, and of course. There's one station where all the uh, the connections to the world, if you like, existed, and that's on the Greenwich Peninsula. And then there's sort of the um, you know the second station, if you like, um, on the Royal um, Victoria Docks side of the river that's not got a lot of functionality. The machine room is is in the uh, Greenwich side. Um, okay. So th the challenge is, you know, how how do you actually deliver service across the length, the one and a half kilometres of the crossing? Um, and, right. Now yeah. let me let me ask you a couple of questions around that that um, are kind of the, they're begging in my mind here. Um, do I if I'm taking this 10 minute 15 minute journey, um, can I talk on my cell phone the entire time? Is there a cell connection during this? Um, it actually turns out that. Um, we're on the wrong side of the O2 for the cellular connection. You, you can get a cellular connection, but it's not the best cellular connection um, for, that, for that crossing. So um, as you hit the Victoria Dockside, it does become residential. There is some business and things there. Um, but the O2 side tends to have a small uh, or a cluster of Pico services to, to service the arena. So if you oh, sort of mean that there's less of a cloud coverage service across that, that river space uh, on the side where the crossing actually is. Um, so you can achieve a, a level of, uh, you know, certainly a voice call, um, but your yeah. data service there. But a reliable, oh, you're right, a reliable data connection is not something I'm going to get over the cell service. So that's the problem, right? The problem is, all right, you need to be able to talk to this cable car full time so that you can get more data out of it, more reliable and... You want to do other things as well, um, yeah. but we can't use cell. So you come into the picture and you say, uh, tell me. Yeah, so, well, I mean, just on that point, just at the very beginning, you, we can't use cell as well because it is um, a battery-powered car. And oh. if you hold up your cell connection with data, which is one solution, you know, you are hitting that battery harder. Uh, mm -hmm. As we all know, you know, if you if you use your cell phone and you stick on data for that, you know, commute, by the time you get to the office, you're you're seriously dented your battery, right? Yeah. Um, so you know, these cable cars are only able to pick up a small amount of you know recharge as they're passing through that station, and they pass through that station in like 30 seconds. So you know that they've got to survive for a long period of time. Um, so the battery power is the key thing. So we needed to um, facilitate all of this minimal power 
Yeah, and Paul, you have to come up with a solution that doesn't say change your whole business model and change the way that this all of this engineering already works. You need to Correct. fit into what's already going on. Absolutely right. Absolutely, you've got to fit in there. So, well, what we first did, which was a bit of fun, is that um, I, I built out um, a couple of uh, LoRa. Uh, WAN radio sensors. Um, so they're actually using LoRa to begin with. So LoRa is the radio modulation um, that enables us to have a, a low power, long range, uh, low bandwidth connectivity. It's a cutting edge new technology that's, that's coming out. Um, and I built a couple of these devices using dev boards and uh, I got to uh, place one in what I call the James Bond fighting zone, you know, where all the wheels are in the uh, in the cable car system. So I was allowed to go up into this high space where I had the best line of sight uh, across the crossing, and I was able to hang uh, my small device there. Uh, and then I was able to go down, jump in a cable car with my second device, and sit there and just watch transmissions. Uh, and mm -hmm. without doing anything else, um, I was able to achieve, you know, sensor connectivity all the way across the crossing and back again. Um, so that was a really fantastic kind of my first experience in getting yeah. into, into LoRa. Wing dunk, first try. Absolutely, tough on. Uh, all with only 8.2 centimeters of wire aerial as well. No, nothing uh, super <laughs> elaborate there. So, and so that, probably very minimal battery use as well. So you, it was really the beginning of a possible solution. Absolutely. I, I was running from uh, 2200 milliamp LiPos, which are you know, really quite small and thin, um, and that they run these devices for ages. I, mean, I use them on, day on, day in, day out, again and again and again, and I charge them, you know, every other week kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that they're going for long. And that, that's unoptimized. I've got some other bits I want to show you where I'm, I'm working towards sensors that will uh, give us multiple years. Um, okay. Because that's what we need. So yeah. Boy, that, that's incredible, actually. So, so, so we ended up um, with the plan of using LoRaWAN. Now, just to get that in perspective for you, um, LoRa, as I said, is the radio modulation. Uh, and then above that, we now have LoRaWAN. Now, LoRaWAN is, is if you like, an OSI, OSI layer 2, 3 um, Mac level protocol. So it's giving us some Mac commands to, to uh, abstract us from just the LoRa functionality. And that enables us to do some more significant things with different classes of, of device using the, the LoRaWAN network. Um, LoRaWAN networks are a star configuration. The gateway's in the middle. All the devices are going to that gateway. Um, and it has a, a variable or adaptive data rate. So the further you are from um, the base station, um, the slower your bandwidth or the less bandwidth you'll have, um, but the stronger the signal transmission will be. So as you move closer to the, the, the actual gateway, you, in, you speed up in terms of the volume of data you can transmit, and so your transmit time is shorter. And as you move away, you work harder with a greater power per bit, if you like, yeah. um, your transmission rate is slower. So it's a really fantastic technology. Um, and in perfect conditions where you've got line of sight to, um, you know, between your sensor and the gateway, um, you can end up with 15 kilometers of coverage, um, which is <laughs> phenomenal coverage for um, sort of sensor IoT devices. Yeah. And um, then, so but when you put this in the James Bond location, uh, that was on one of the cars, but I guess you had then... Um, other gateways at each of the of the different edges, or how no. were you? What were you communicating to? So, so I only needed I only need one gateway in the Greenwich Peninsula. 
Um, that that was where in the fight. Oh, because uh, one and a half kilometers is such a small area for Lorawan. Correct. I yeah. see. But, so so as long, given that we're crossing the river and there's there's no you know urban density to that river, you know there's no obstructions to um, you know um, obscure the signal. Um, yeah, just one gateway uh, in in a suitable location on one station gives us the the, the range we need. Um, okay. to be able to instrument all the cars and the other end of the station. But that's, that's not all the, 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 uh, the uh, solution because LoRaWAN ha has a very low data rate. We're only talking bytes, you know, with okay. a byte per second. Um, and in, in the UK, um, we're, we're quite strictly regulated on the duty cycle. So if I give you a little background around LoRaWAN. Sure, Paul. Give me just a, a little bit about uh, LoRaWAN's background so I can understand it. Okay, so, so LoRaWAN um, runs on a, a set number of frequencies across the globe, slightly different between the United States and Europe and, and Australia and okay. China, for example. Um, but they have a duty cycle on, on the frequency usage. So certainly in Europe we do. And that means that we can't transmit data um, more frequently than maybe 1% or 0.1% of the possible available time. So that's why our data rate is not just low, but we might only transmit data every few minutes. You're not going to stream, yeah. you know, things from that. So I'm not going to so, be able to watch a, a, a CCTV inside by any stretch of the imagination. No. So we needed a second network to give us that, you know, medium bandwidth um, and still cover the range uh, that we had of the crossing. Uh, and that's where Microsoft Research Cambridge Lab came in um, because oh. they have a TV white space network that they've been developing. And so the TV white space network just nicely comes in with a range large enough to cover the one half kilometer crossing, um, but it's delivering us something like six megabits per second. So wow. now we're actually better in, in, in our connectivity. Um, so this gave us the opportunity um, to start hanging off, you know, some interesting other devices in the station. Now the 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 research guys really wanted to prove that their network could deliver that sort of throughput and keep going. Um, so what we came up with was let's actually have um, some um, IP CCTV cameras that can essentially <laughs> stream the feed across the TV white space um, and then we'll do our analysis in the cloud. Of yeah. that. Um, so those devices um, you know, in, in the real world, we're going to scale out and we're going to, you know, move the intelligence maybe into the CCTV device. But for this this particular hack project, sure. um, it gave us the opportunity to test the network. So we ended up building um, our uh, computer vision analytics as services in Azure, uh, okay. and we framed those as, as smart IoT devices. So today we might talk more about intelligent edge devices, um, and that's where we certainly are in our device build. Um, but back in last year when we were building out this uh, architecture, we thought we'll stream so we have a constant network load and then we can evaluate the network performance um, and give MSR, Microsoft Research, some data back. What's the hardware requirement for using TV white space? Which, I, you know, I know one of the things that uh, MSR is using TV white space is to bring um, the internet to rural areas as well, where it's just impractical otherwise to reach. Even in Africa, we have a whole we have a whole story that I've read out, and it's just it's you know it's inspiring. But at the same time, 
what do you what do you need? Is it a is it a standard antenna on the device that is transmitting? And what do you have at each of at each of the sides, or just one of the side? And what what do you have there? So so again, you're only transmitting from one location, um, okay. and and the antenna is is actually pretty much off the shelf uh, antenna. Um, it, it actually is a device that, if you imagined an old 15-inch luggable laptop closed, that's uh -huh. kind of the size of the thing. Um, I can't talk too much yet about the other stuff. The other stuff is really interesting, but but that's still secret source, as it were, that, that MSI uh, uh, aren't quite yet okay. sharing. Um, okay. So we have to. You say, can tell me it's know, amazing. You know, you can t describe it in those words. It's awesome. Yeah, well, it's neat. It's clever. And potentially, you know, it, you've got a fairly succinct single small device that you need to use on site. Um, mm. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, so we ended up with, you know, um, the TV white space just needing, you know, an internet connection on yeah. site and a mains point. The, the Laura Wang gateways only needed a mains point um, because they were already integrating back into the TV white space. And, and even our um, smart CCTV cameras only needed a mains point, um, a mains PowerPoint, because they're wireless back to TV white space. Mm. So you can see that um, we can now rapidly instrument the the stations um, with um, that sort of just, I just need mains, just give me electricity and all these things are going to run uh, from that perspective. Um, the LoRa side though, again, as, as I mentioned, is, you know, we're down to battery power and we're down to running off um, coin cell batteries, the classic CR2032, uh, oh. And obtaining something like you know uh, multiple years. I'm aiming for three years because three years is a, a typical um, facilities management contract length. So mm -hmm. if you can imagine you're instrumenting a new customer, you know, at the end of the three years, where well, you either go around and change the batteries, or you just you know you can walk away because they're so insignificant in cost. Huh. Fascinating! Wow. So that low battery of uh, power cost. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a, a, it ends up with very small devices. You obviously are doing um, some great embedded development because you're looking to, um, you know, uh, compress any data that you're sending, um, but you're also looking to transmit it as fast as possible and turn the radio off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, Paul, tell me, what did, what did devices like this look like? Uh, I can show you. Okay, Paul, I can see your desk. What am I looking at here? So, well, the first one is the yellow box. So th this is the actual device I, I hung in the James Bond fighting zone um, originally. So it is actually a Cortex-M0 um, device under there, but this one has not a typical Win 1500 Wi-Fi chip in it. It's got a LoRa chip in it. And that LoRa chip, uh, I've, I've, I've modified the circuit um, with a little jump wire um, so that we can actually get the interrupt from the radio sock um, to see the proper functionality of the LoRaWAN. Um, but essentially, this little device with its OLED screen um, is able to do the transmissions I need to, to do the test. Um, so that's a, that's a great little environment. Um, this one that I'm going to show you now, um, this, this is uh, a certified device. So this is uh, a Multitech MDOT uh, in its dev board. And, and this is a sort of device that we'll actually probably use. It, it's got a full or it's got a quarter length uh, aerial on it, which is much more significant. We don't need to use that. Um, but it, it does mean that I've got a certified radio board that I can use. So that, yeah. that's, that's important in the production of you know, commercial devices. It gives us a jump start. Um, but where I'm going 
is playing with with this little board. So this is a, a great little P, uh, PCB uh, printed circuit board that I, I found on OSH Park, um, and it was um, manufactured by uh, Brandon. Um, but basically, I, I've put this together, so I'm particularly pleased with my surface-mounted soldering to get a, a 32U4 <laughs> chip on there and running. And then I'm using this standard radio sock, um, which hopefully you can get to see there. Uh, and you can see the, the um, CR2032 battery piece. So this is the Again. size of a, a key fob, um, and yet I've got a processor on there um, that can, you know, derive data from a variety of input devices, analog or digital, um, compress it all, encrypt it all, and deliver it over, you know, the classic um, 8.2 centimeters of wire aerial, um, which is uh, exactly Talk to me the a little bit about what would you expect for the production cost of those three devices to be? Yeah, so, um, well, if we talked about the, the M dot and uh, the actual um, the pieces the raw pieces that I'm working in terms of bill of materials um, the M dot as it is in a release device I think that the whole dev kit you see there it um, comes in at still at about 140 pounds but you obviously don't need the USB adapter when you're just using the M dot so you can bring that price down to somewhere heading towards half of that okay. still expensive you can see that um, now if I move to um, the piece I'm building up um, mm. That uh, radio sock there it, it comes in at my hobbyist prices of uh, just under eight pounds, um, <laughs> but at, at volume you can get it down to five pounds. And likewise, the Atmel 32U4 hobbyist prices are maybe four pounds, but the um, volume price is, is less again. Uh, and you could use, you know, uh, one of the Cortex chips in, in place of that, and, and probably achieve a better uh, price reduction. Um, nonetheless. You know, I'm looking at a, a prototype sensor um, that, that's costing me sort of 10, 11 pounds, yeah, and, and if I took that through certification and then into manufacturing, you know, you could expect the volume pricing to go lower than that. So okay. we are seeing tenfold decreases in IoT pricing, um, and when you actually get down to the nuts and bolts of it, uh, obviously, you know, the prices are very... Um, affordable um, but you know we've still got that sort of certification liability cost that you've got to sort of uh, incorporate into that sensor piece um, sure sure so well uh, there is a cost of doing right. business we're not trying to get to zero we're just trying to that's make right. it reasonable that's right absolutely uh, and then if I just gave you a little example there that this is um, just a, literally a device that I, I built it's not one that we've used but it's one that I was playing with to demonstrate things um, this is just a very small sort of uh, what four inch CCTV housing uh, but inside there is a Raspberry Pi Zero W um, which can connect to Wi-Fi so Raspberry Pi Zero it is the smallest of the Raspberry Pis. It's, you know, matchbox size kind of thing. Uh, and it's got a, a, the Raspberry Pi camera in there. So, you know, all of that is in there. Now, what's interesting there is that the Pi Zero costs, you know, something like, you know, eight, nine pounds. And the camera maybe costs 20 pounds and the case costs a few quid. So, you know, but that becomes a device that just needs power. Um, and then you're actually, uh, you know, up and running on the, as a sensor device, a smart sensor device through to the cloud. That's right. And then I suppose as a business, you get to decide if you want something uh, expensive and rugged or inexpensive and easily replaceable. 
Yeah, absolutely. And as we push the prices down, these things are becoming disposable. Um, we yeah. are already seeing, you know, agricultural solutions where sensors are included in the sacks of fertilizer, uh, and 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 therefore, you know, they are entirely disposable um, from that perspective. This is all very cool. Anything else? Yeah. Well, well, I just wanted to show you the the multi-tech conduit device that we're using as a gateway. Um, th this is uh, uh, an mLinux-based device. Um, it's about the size of a typical Wi-Fi router, um, but it's running on LoRaWAN, and uh, you can actually add to it various boards to give you the connectivity into other maybe exotic networks. Um, the really cool thing here is that I I'm building out using the Azure IoT uh, Gateway SDK the direct integration of this device into IoT Hub. So this would mean that you know you can just place this device in an environment such as an office block or uh, or wherever, and um, you know it'll then connect via a backhaul like Wi-Fi or, or uh, wired internet, wired Ethernet, uh, straight into IoT Hub for all your IoT devices. Um, and and this is sort of uh, you know some something less than five hundred pounds um, configured. Sure. So uh, and then how many devices would that be able to accommodate? Well, the gateway in LoRaWAN can listen across eight channels. That ha each channel has at least six spreading factor subchannels across them. Um, so that means, in a properly implemented solution, you can achieve towards ten thousand sensors against this one gateway. Okay, so just about the number I was hoping you'd say. <laughs> yeah. That's a big number. It's an extreme number, uh, and, and you do have to be careful in your programming uh, of the sensors and their expectations to participate on the network with all the duty cycle stuff we've spoken about. Um, but that is the sort of thing that you're able to do. Um, and therefore, you can see that when I say, you know, compared to BLE and Wi-Fi, you know, the sensor to gateway ratio is significantly different. Uh, and I've, I've got a great little slide I'll show you that has um, me testing this in the Microsoft uh, UK campus. And that campus consists of five buildings. And I place the gateway on the second floor of, the, um, of building two. And then I walked around with my yellow box. And I got full coverage in building one, building two, and most of building three. Um, now these are, you know, multiple floors, um, you know, densely packed with electronic devices and partitions, and and even electronic countermeasure cladding. Um, and yet, you know, the signal yeah, good you know, point. Uh, passed through very significantly. In fact, outside of the buildings, um, the parkland and the car parks around the campus were also covered with lower end functionality. So, so that left buildings four and five uh, uncovered. Um, so if I added a second gateway, they can happily overlap. And so two LoRaWAN gateways in the entirety of Microsoft's UK campus could be instrumented uh, mm. using those devices. Yeah, that is definitely impressive. Wow. OK, Paul, very neat stuff. Uh, what did the customer think of this solution? Well, the customer's excited about the, the potential of the solution because suddenly we are reducing that instrumentation cost uh, while also increasing opportunities for them achieving more commercial value. So there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of uh, potential here that we're only starting to mine now. Uh, but we've got a good, uh, solid foundation in the architecture. Um, the two overlapping network technologies provide us with a, a terrific range of opportunity. Um, our smart sort of sensors enable us to monitor pedestrians, monitor traffic, or monitor any other sort of device things. Um, and the, the low-cost sensors provide a way of getting that raw data 
that we need to feed our AI skills. You know, I have to say this is all pretty fascinating because there's a difference between the Raspberry Pi I have on my desk that's monitoring the temperature. And, you know, I take a hairdryer, kind of blow it so I can see it changing. And maybe I even put it up into Azure and how exciting is that. Um, but then the real world, there are a lot of physical limitations, and it's fascinating. You've got to think about a lot of new things. Uh, if there's a developer watching right now, and they're like, wow, Paul has nailed it. I want to do whatever this is. And they want to, they, they come and talk to you, and you're like, where do I even get started? Where do you send developers like that so they can start to learn about some of these um, really niche kind of technologies? Well, I, I think there are three locations. I mean, the first thing to recognize is just how simple um, the Azure IoT hub infrastructure enables you to achieve that back end. Um, okay. and, and that is really straightforward, and it is really simple today. And if you can't get your prototype solution up in a day, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, and, then, and then there's the specialist technologies. So um, the LoRa Alliance website gives you a lot of background, a lot of detail into the LoRa networks. Uh, okay. It talks about the regulation and certification that you need across the different geographies. So that, that's a really cool place. Um, but I'll, I'll point you actually to an open source and crowdfunded site as the final place to go and get inspiration. So this is the thingsnetwork.org. And the Things Network is literally the open source crowdfunded demonstration of LoRa. It currently runs oh. across 86 countries uh, with just short of 18,000 members. Uh, and there is a terrific wealth of uh, technology skill and uh, tutorials and labs and how-tos on their site that enable you to actually go and say, you know what, I can build the sensors that I need uh, yeah. to drive my sensor web through to the ease of Azure to be able to then consume that data and do something of value with it. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then w one last thing is, where do you send a developer who wants the MSR TV Whitespace SDK? Um, do a search for Microsoft Research <laughs> Dynamic TV Whitespace Technologies, and you'll see that. Um, but fundamentally, while we're waiting for that wonderful technology, um, you can play on Wi-Fi and, uh, and dream of the range and simplicity of TV white space. There it is. <laughs> there is something cool about using a technology that is yet to be available to everybody else. Definitely cool to be able to talk Absolutely. about it. Paul, this is pretty neat stuff. Um, a fascinating customer with an unusual, yet not crazy, uh, problem to be solved and solved in a, a, a very reasonable way. Thanks for talking to me about this and kind of stepping to me through the architecture of the solution. Hey, pleasure, Jerry. It's great fun to share all this stuff and even more fun building it. I'll bet it is. All right. We'll see you again. Cheers.